Amen. You may be seated. As you're taking your seats, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27. As you turn there, and if you've got a little place that maybe you can jot this down, we were, if time permitted, we were going to sing uh, Psalm 91, another paraphrase of it. And that's uh, under the title, it used to be the Bible song, uh, Under His Wings. And I think under in the Trinity hymnal, it's under the care of my God the Almighty, number 84. Yes, under the care of my God the Almighty, number 84. You may want to take that this afternoon, if you've, particularly if you've got a hymnal at home, uh, and go through that and you old ARPs, you don't even have to just read it, you can sing it because you know the tune. All right, under the wings of my God the Almighty, under His care. David had been under the care of Almighty God. Let's see now what happens. But before we actually read, let me remind you too of something you know, I suspect, and that is that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are not inspired scripture. They've been added. And R.C. Sproul used to always say it was like a circuit rider. And he's on his horse and he's riding along. And sometimes uh, he's trying to mark up the Bible and put chapter headings and chapter numbers and verse numbers to make it easier for us to search and find things when it's time to study and read the Bible. And that horse steps into a hole and he jars the rider and he puts the number or the mark in the wrong place. Such is the case today. We're reading chapter 27 and then the first two verses of chapter 28. That's where chapter 28 should begin in Lee's humble opinion with verse 3. That being said, let's hear God's word. Then David said in his heart, or said to his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he said, the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maom, king of Gath. David lived with Achish at Gath. He and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive. He would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremelites, or against the Negev of the Canaanites. David would leave neither man nor woman alive. 
to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done such an, was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. And in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me and the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I'll make you my bodyguard or guard of my head for life. The Word of God for the people of God. The next two chapters in Samuel are frankly strange. They're challenging. This one makes me feel as if I have just been punched in the gut. I'm thinking as I read this, David, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you thinking? The one who had feared being forced out of the promised land, away from the covenant community, away from the, from the glories of the covenant and the means of God's grace. The one who had so feared that now does what? Voluntarily. He exiles himself out of that promised land. The one who had received assurance after assurance after assurance Success after success after success from the Lord, from the God of the covenant, from Yahweh. He now runs in fear. And notice, maybe you you pick this up. There is no mention of Yahweh in the entire chapter. No mention of the Lord. As one commentator put it, this is a godless chapter. Godless and outside the promised land. The one who had heard the blessings of God from Samuel, the one who had heard the blessings of God from Jonathan, the one who had heard the blessings of God from Abigail, now talks to himself and talks himself right into the hands of the arch enemy of Israel. The one who had been spared of shedding the blood of crazy Saul. The one who had been shared of shedding the blood of foolish Nabal and his clan. Now does what? He sheds blood with abandon. The one who we were told in just the last chapter was righteous and faithful. is ruthless and deceptive. In this chapter. This chapter, I think, is true history, and by design of Almighty God, it is to give readers a gut punch. You see, we've been liking our hero, haven't we? We've been liking this David. I mean, he's noble, got a lot of great things going for him, we've grown fond of him. Yes, we saw him just about go off on Nabal and his clan. But God spared him from that. God kept him from that. And we kept rooting for him. 
And now we are plunged into this dark chapter with an all-too-human hero. It's a gut punch. And this gut punch of a chapter, in it I want us to hear four warnings. God may not be mentioned in this chapter, but God is speaking through this chapter to God's people. He's certainly speaking to us. But before we get to those four warnings, I want you to notice one thing about the Bible. I make one observation about the Bible. The Bible's real. It's a real book. It's a real collection of 66 books about real people. This is no hagiography. This is no sort of holy biographies where we put up this saint or this hero and act as if they have nothing wrong with them, that they're just beautiful, wonderful, fine, nothing sinful about them. Just emulate them. No perfect heroes other than one. One. And that reassures me in two ways. Number one, it reassures me that this is not some cooked-up scheme to dupe gullible people. I mean, it's kind of hard for me to even imagine that sort of argument against the Bible. I mean, it's this collection of 66 books that are written over this long period of time by all kinds of different authors. But can you imagine if you're trying to dupe and fool people with some sort of made-up religion that you take all these books from over all this period of time, put them together and say, here, read this. This is going to make you know the true religion. Now, if you were to do that, or at least if I were to do that, guess what? I would not have heroes like David doing the things that David does in this chapter and will do later. I wouldn't have drawn it up like this. Oh, all my heroes would have been stellar. Not, not a single flaw. Now, if you give me your money, you can be just like them. That's what I'd do. The second reassurance is a real Bible that can speak to real people. No fake, no sugary sort of plastic smile people. If David could do all this, and as we'll see, as David could do more, and yet receive mercy, forgiveness, and grace, guess what? Maybe there's hope for this guy named Lee. Maybe there's hope for you. Not maybe, there is. Those are the assurances. Let's get the warnings. First warning is this. It's a warning for self-talking worriers. A warning for self-talking worriers. Have y'all gotten used to walking along on the street in public and you see these people and they're a little bit of distance from you and they're coming to you and they're talking. But they're just by themselves. And they're talking, and then you think, well, maybe they're talking to me. I better listen, better pay attention. Then you realize, no, they're not talking to me. And then you see the earbuds, right? Or you see the cords coming down, and you say, oh, they're talking on the phone. That's kind of weird, isn't it? It's kind of a weird sensation. Uh, it's even weirder when the person's not talking on the phone, but they're talking to themselves, right? That's even stranger. 
Well, we might not be weird like that ourselves, but brothers and sisters, we talk to ourselves all the time. We just might not vocalize it for other people to hear. You are talking to yourself right now. You are. There's conversation going on up there. You're talking. Maybe some of you are preaching. We preach, we talk, we cajole, we encourage, we warn, we say, go get them, boy. We say, oh, you were stupid. That was idiotic. Why would you do that? What are you doing that for? We talk to ourselves all the time. But here's the question. That's a given. I know you're talking to yourself. You can't pull it uh, over on me. I know you're doing it. But here's the question. What are you saying to yourself? What are you saying to yourself? Notice verse 1 again. Then David said in or to his heart, he's talking to himself, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than that I should escape from the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. He's having a talk with himself. But David, what about? David, are you talking about God? Where's God in your preaching to yourself, David? Where's the God who's done great things through you? Where's the God who's kept you from sins of all kinds by His always timely and kind providences? Now David, in his official capacity as a king, is a type pointing us to Jesus Christ. But brothers and sisters, as a sinner, he points us to ourselves and our own sins and our own need of a Savior. Are you a self-talker? Go ahead. Nod. Yes, you are. Okay? What do you preach to yourself? What do you preach to yourself? Is God in your sermons to yourself? Or are you overwhelmed by your circumstances? That you have no place in your sermon to yourself for Him. And instead you preach you to yourself. You and your nearsighted, self-centered schemes of self-reliance and self-delivery. Warning number one, you've heard the alarm, you've seen the light, hear the second one, see the second one. This text is a warning for nearsighted pragmatists. It's a warning for nearsighted pragmatists. Well, David did what David told himself to do. And what was the outcome? His plan what? It worked. It worked. It worked well. It worked very well. And where would this plan that worked so well lead 
David. David's actions in not attacking his own people seem to have indicated that he got where this might lead him. Where would his plan lead him? To being drawn into battle against Israel. His very own people. The very people David was officially going to be the king of. And even before he would be drawn into a battle, or possibly into a battle, the news of his going over would certainly spread. You remember what, what sort of spy network Saul's got. I mean, news traveled fast. And if you're an Israelite, are you, you, you might kind of understand, yes, Saul, our king's been going after this guy. So I can imagine him going over and hiding somewhere. And you look at your calendar. Oh boy, he's still over there. Oh boy, he's still over there. Oh boy, he's still over there. A year and four months, he's over there. And you're thinking to yourself, and you're hearing these stories of him wiping out these people, and you're saying, is he going to do that against us? He was looking at this immediate crisis of Saul tracking him down, and he sought immediate relief from that immediate crisis without thinking of the long-term consequences this might bring. The, the very possibility he could lose his kingship by taking these actions. And when I see this, I'm saying, David, are you nuts? And when I do, about that time, there's this still small voice that says, Lee, look at the mirror. Look in the mirror, Lee. There is a way that seems right unto a man. Lean not on your own understanding. Oh, how I'll play the short game with little or no thought of the long game. Am I the only one? Don't leave me hanging out here. Am I the only one? No. We do this, don't we? We look at the immediate crisis. How can we tackle it? How can we solve it? How can we take care of it? And don't really think about where that takes us. Now, our, our situation is not as dire as David's situation. My situation wasn't as dire as David when I was in college. When I was in college, I was a civil engineering student. I commuted from Union, Georgia to Atlanta, Georgia to Georgia Tech. One particular day, one particular quarter, I had this long day. I had morning classes up until about lunch, and then I had a night class. And then I had all these hours in between that I had to sit in the student center or do something. And in this, in this particular quarter, I had a lab partner, had a lab class, and the lab partner, I can't remember his name, but I can remember what he looked like. And this is going to date me. He looked like Rosie Greer. So if you know Rosie Greer, you know what this lab partner looked like. Great guy, fun to be around, smart as a whip. And he said, Lee, I know you got this long period of time, and we got this lab thing that we got a project we got to work on. So I'll tell, tell you what, 
go with me and we'll go to our house, my, my, my wife and I, our house, and it's over on the east side of Atlanta. We'll jump on the connector. We'll hit 7585, depending on traffic. We'll go up to 285. We'll swing around over towards Stone Mountain. And you can just stay with me, hang out at our place. My wife will cook a wonderful meal. She's brilliant and she cooks wonderfully well. And we'll just have a, this is where we'll work. And I'm saying, yes, that solves so many little problems of mine today. So I jump in his BMW with him. By the time we hit the connector, we're doing 70. By the time we're hitting 285, we're hitting 100. And he's smoking a joint. And I'm thinking, Lord, what have I gotten myself into? The Lord was gracious to me. We weren't pulled over. I wasn't thrown in jail. But you see how our short-term focus can put us in great danger? Quickly, next warning. A warning for spiritual battle victors. A warning for spiritual battle victors. What happens here in the story of David after his victorious encounter with Saul reminds me of another story that's to come. And that's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember that story, don't you? Great victory, right? Elijah, the one man of God. 450 prophets of Baal. And they go at it. You know, pray to your, pray to your gods. See if they can take care of this offering. And I'm going to pour water all over it. It's just going to be hard. It's going to be hard test. And I'm going to pray this short little prayer. And God does what? Answers it, sends fire, burns up the sacrifice, despite all that water. And then after that, God sends the rain. Well, it's a great victory, right? Elijah's defeated the prophets of Baal, and he defeats them, really does. He slaughters them, gets rid of them. And then he gets scared. Because news gets out to whom? Jezebel. And Elijah runs in fear, doesn't he? He hides. Great man of faith. Afraid, a coward, despairing to the point of asking God to take his life. Here's the point. With great spiritual highs, so often come immediately thereafter what? Great spiritual lows. Great spiritual lows. And brothers and sisters, just recognize at that great spiritual height, you are exceedingly vulnerable. Exceedingly vulnerable for the attacks of Satan. We love the spiritual highs. I get it. I want them too. But i got to remember at that spiritual high... Just like David was experienced. He had just gotten Saul's spear in his canteen, his water jug, right? Right from under him. And he's able to basically taunt him. Great spiritual high, victory. And immediately after it, he's running off, away and out of the promised land. We love the spiritual highs, but brothers and sisters, let's be ready. Let's be ready. There the temptations are oftentimes the strongest. 
I, I love, there's a title of one of Eugene Peterson's books. I just love this title because it kind of gives us, I think, a, a good picture. Yes, we like the spiritual highs in this, and, and we don't like the spiritual lows, but we really love the spiritual highs, and God will give us some of those. But the title of Peterson's book is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. May our spiritual lives be a lot of that. And not so many of these deep, deep lows. But when, you have, when you're up there at the high point, hear the warning. See the light. Last one, a warning for self-righteous romantics. A warning for self-righteous romantics. David forgets God. David goes over to the other side. David leaves the promised land. David trusts in his short-sighted schemes. David goes to Gath, the very home of Goliath. David offers the Philistine prince his service. I am your servant. And not only my servant, I'm a servant. All my guys are your servants too. David earns the prince's favor. David is given a Philistine town. David ruthlessly slaughters the enemies of the Philistines. David schemes, David connives, David deceives. And Achish puts his trust in David. And Achish makes him his, basically his right-hand man. You're going to protect my... Did you notice? It's not just bodyguards. You're going to protect my... At this point, I'm almost sympathetic to the good-looking, crazy country king named Saul. Because I'm mad at David. Because I've grown to like him. I've been rooting for him. He's become a hero. I've placed David on a pedestal. Here's what a manly hero looks like. Boy, we need a bunch of them in our day. And then he does this. It's infuriating. Why am I so mad? I'm mad now. Why do I get worked up? Maybe I'm just odd. Maybe I'm the only one. I get worked up because maybe I'm a romantic. And I'm, and I'm not talking about you know, guy-gal sort of things here. I'm talking more general. Maybe I'm a romantic. Maybe you're a romantic. What is a romantic? Romantics are those who are so prone to hero worship. To hero worship. Shakespeare picked the perfect name for a young lady character in his play, Much Ado About Nothing. Her name was Hero. And Hero's uh, suitor was Claudio. And Claudio adored Hero. Let me scratch that. Claudio adored his conception of hero, his idealized form of hero. For hero to him was the idealized version of a woman and love, and he placed her on a pedestal. But then if you know the story, he was deceived in the thinking that she was actually a very loose and immoral woman. And that set him off in rage. Why? Because his idol had warts. His idol had weaknesses. 
His idol had faults. His idol had sins. She was a real person. And he lashed out. And maybe there's something of that sort of response, at least in me, maybe in you, towards David as I read this chapter. I'm lashing out. Maybe you are, as I have been, scandalized by God's grace shown to such a man. Folks, he's slaughtering people with abandon. I'm a bit scandalized by God's grace shown to such a man. Yeah, if the Holy Spirit's at work right now in Lee's heart, and if the Holy Spirit's at work in your heart, maybe you realize that this foolish and this bloody and this deceptive David is more like you and me than we have imagined. Trusting in our own schemes and strength in the face of depression and weariness. One moment lamenting being away from the people of God and the means of God's grace and having access to holy worship and then the next going off doing our own things. Sacred and set apart unto the Lord. Then oh so secular in the way we preach to ourselves and the ways that we live. Brothers and sisters, David, instead of a hero on a pedestal, maybe he's a mirror. And maybe when we look into this mirror, the scandal of grace ought to be the scandal of why would God ever be so gracious to me? To you. This gut-wrenching, gut-punch, seemingly godless chapter provides us with some sweet assurances and it gives us four clear warnings. Will you heed them? Let us heed them and let us place our hope not in David, but in Jesus Christ, the only perfect hero and let us place our hope in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, we pray that Your Spirit is at work right now in our hearts, leading us, O Lord, to Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners, leading us in conviction of our own sin and selfishness, foolishness, to the only wise and perfect Savior, one who has shed his blood for us. May we sing the words that we're about to sing and truly mean them in our hearts, that yours is marvelous grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.